3: Hello, it's Alok here. At The Economist, we're always keen to improve our podcasts. And what would help us is if we knew a little more about our listeners. If you can spare us a few minutes, please fill out a short questionnaire at economist.com slash survey. There's a link in the notes for this episode. Thank you. And now on to today's episode.
1: War has returned to Europe. In the early hours of Thursday, Russian tanks and troops rolled across the border in a full-scale invasion of Ukraine.
3: Ukraine under attack. Military bases, airports, and aircraft have been targeted and bombed. In the early days of the Russian invasion, there was panic and confusion. But what heightened all that chaos and fear even further was that communication became more difficult. Mobile phone and internet outages affected most major Ukrainian cities. In Kharkiv, Ukraine's second largest city, it's estimated that a quarter of people couldn't get online.
1: It was it was complicated because the first days nobody knew what's going on, and what is going to happen, nobody knew.
3: Zivinka Orodnik is a Ukrainian military medic and one of those affected by the communications blackout.
1: Uh, our military unit. Uh, went someone like occupied the position somewhere in the woods and we didn't even know where we are because there was no cell phone connection, nothing, like no internet, no calls.
3: Where she was working north of Kiev, her internet and phone service disappeared for a full week, she said. Her unit was disoriented, driving down roads they'd never been on, without maps, without anyone to tell them where to go.
1: And when we were helping uh, civilians and military casualties, like we didn't even know where we have to drive them to, like what hospital we have to drive them to.
3: Attacks on physical communications infrastructure clearly played a role in the blackouts, but so too did cyber attacks. On February the 24th, less than an hour before the invasion began, Russia targeted a critical piece of Ukraine's satellite network, which is run by an American firm called Viasat. The subsequent loss in communications had ripple effects beyond Ukraine's borders. Even wind farms in Central Europe were affected by the outages. The Viasat attack also raised fears of a full-on cyber war. It was after all the first time that two mature cyber powers have fought each other over computer networks during wartime. But in the months since the start of the invasion, things have not turned out as many people might have expected. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science correspondent. This week, why Russia has struggled with its cyber war against Ukraine. We'll look at what's been going on behind the front lines and who Russia's digital warriors actually are.
0: Russian intelligence agencies have co-opted a number of Russian hackers by offering them money to take a pause with ransomware attacks and support the war effort. And we'll ask whether Russia's cyber capabilities have been overrated
3: or if digital sabotage itself has been misunderstood until now.
2: Ultimately to really penetrate a network to the degree where you can certainly have the effect and control the effect that you want to have, that can take many months, absolutely.
3: Guiding me through the story this week is Shashank Joshi, The Economist's Defence Editor. Shashank, welcome back to the show. Last time we spoke on Babbage about cyber warfare, it was just days after Russia had invaded Ukraine. Can you just take us back to that moment, just before the invasion, in fact? The world could see that there was a buildup of Russian troops already along the Ukrainian border. But there were also signs of an invasion coming online, wasn't there?
1: There absolutely was. The US... Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency known as CISA issued a shields up alert the week before the invasion in January there had already been a so-called wiper attack on Ukrainian systems, which wipes data from computers and other devices. And the day before the invasion, we saw the beginnings of another kind of cyber offensive. We saw very crude but disruptive attacks on Ukrainian government websites, including denial of service attacks, which essentially bombard websites with huge amounts of data. And so I think once The Russian invasion began, we all expected a kind of digital kitchen sink for Ukraine's governmental systems their military systems to suffer a full-scale cyber onslaught.
3: And then what happened on the day of the invasion itself, February the 24th?
1: Well, there was an onslaught of sorts in the sense that there was a sophisticated attack, a cyber attack, on the modems that control the satellite systems for a company called Viasat. It was a commercial company and the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian armed forces used this system. And this cyber attack was pretty successful. It had a fairly substantive impact on the satellite modems. It affected the communication for the Ukrainian military. And there were a number of other lower grade attacks. But I think what's important to remember is that it wasn't something that took Ukrainian systems completely down. Ukraine could still communicate. President Volodymyr Zelensky was still able to get on television and get his message out. Ukrainian government accounts could still tweet. They could still send emails. They could still communicate with the outside world. So in that sense, I think the cyber offensive of that first day was probably a bit less overwhelming than some people thought might occur.
3: And in the months since the invasion began then, what other sort of attacks have we seen? Well, the
1: Viasat attack, think of this kind of as an exquisite set piece. You think of a Hollywood heist movie where you have to do a reconnaissance on the bank. You plan an elaborate, incredibly exquisite attack to get through security. You plan your exfiltration, getting stuff out. If that's the big set piece... What we mostly have seen is stuff that's a lot more basic than that. There's been a big reliance on wiper malware, which effectively just destroying data. And what we have seen, particularly as the months went on, is fewer exquisite high-grade attacks and a lot more of these basic crude attacks that are still effective in their own way, but they're based on volume. They're based on disruption by sheer mass, not on being the most elaborate, intricate kinds of cyber attacks you could imagine.
3: Now, it's suspected that the aim of the Vyasat attack was the military, but is there any way of knowing how much of the Ukrainian forces have been actually impacted by cyber threats in general?
1: The short answer is not really. Um, We know from speaking to Ukrainian officials that military networks have been penetrated, they have been affected. And indeed, the Viasat attack did have an impact on military communications. They did have backups, they had alternatives, they'd prepared for it. But I think this gets at something absolutely fundamental, which is that we don't know what we don't know. You know, Cyber is not like watching tank battles in that you have video footage coming out, you have tweets, you have social media analysis. You don't see the cyber offensive in the same way other than what the Ukrainians choose to release. And I think there's a sense in which the Ukrainians are not always going to admit if they have been penetrated, if they've been affected. So I think we have to be open and honest and say there's a lot about the Russian cyber offensive that we may not know and that we may not know for a good long while.
3: What about things like cell phone communications? And we know that Ukraine's soldiers use cell phones to communicate with each other. Um, ha- has that been exploited as far as any cyber security risk is concerned?
1: We have relatively little insight into this, but what we do know is that this has been a part of the Ukrainian battlefield in the past. There's a very famous case a few years ago of a Russian cyber attack, a intrusion on Ukrainian cell phones that was able to discern the location of those phones. That data was quickly transmitted to a Russian artillery battery, which then brought devastating fire down on the Ukrainian position causing heavy casualties. We think of deadly cyber attacks as being those which directly affect a piece of machinery or a military weapon, but I would say the deadliest ones are probably those that conduct intelligence gathering and pass the fruits of that cyber espionage back to a very traditional weapon like an artillery gun or a rocket, which then takes out a position. And that's probably the most lethal kind of cyber warfare that there is. Certainly much more realistic than some of the very high end stuff that you might imagine directly, you know, using code to take out a gun in the field.
3: Yeah. So instead of debilitating assets, it's just identifying places and locations, but almost by the data that's being sent out by accident in the way that people use their devices.
1: Yeah, and I would generalise that further, Alok, which is that cyber, many people would say, many experts, is an intelligence contest, and you know, in that sense, it's just what intelligence in war has always been. You know, some of our listeners may have seen the movie The Imitation Game, which describes the process of the Allies breaking the German Enigma code through old-fashioned cryptanalysis, in old-fashioned code breakings, cipher breaking, and using the fruits of that to conduct military operations. Well. Cyber is in many ways the same. You can use it to directly affect a system or you can use it just to steal data, whether that's the location of a headquarters or whether that's the specific nature of a unit that's in a particular part of the battlefield and feed that onto somebody else. And that does what intelligence in war has always done. It has allowed you to bring shells, bombs, bullets down on exactly the right place.
3: Yeah, that does make sense. Uh, But this isn't the first time that Russia has paired... A physical battle with cyber warfare, is it? I mean, how would you compare the campaign from this year with what was seen after the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and the years that followed?
1: Well, I have to say it's more intensive. It's more sustained. This is also about overwhelming the Ukrainians, not with the digital equivalent of a cruise missile, but with the equivalent of kind of mass artillery fire. That is, you you input so much friction into their system. You make them spend so much time trying to root out your malware on the Ukrainian systems, that you overwhelm them with a sheer mass of low-grade cyber attacks. You could call it uh, cyber warfare by attrition. So this is much more intensive than the operations we saw between 2014 and 2022. But nonetheless, I think that it's important to look back because it's that Ukrainian experience of facing Russian cyber attacks relentlessly for so long, including some incredibly sophisticated ones, like the ones against the uh, Ukrainian power grid. And the 2016 example was a piece of malware called Indestroyer, which was successful in affecting the substations that control the power grid around Kiev. That experience probably taught the Ukrainians about what was coming. It helped them prepare their defenses. And and so I think to that extent, being the testbed for Russia, you know, the Ukraine being the kind of practice ground for Russian cyber warfare for so many years, to some degree inoculated them, it prepared them, it helped them understand how when the day came, they would have to be able to parry these attacks. And I think that that's been relatively successful.
3: Ukraine's past experience with Russian cyber attacks isn't the only reason the campaign seems to have fallen flat. We'll hear more about that from Shashank later in the show. But first, while the cyber campaign hasn't always been effective, it's certainly been intense. Who are the cyber warriors who've been launching the barrage of attacks?
0: One thing that we've seen is that a number of groups involved uh, that have been historically involved in financial crime, ransomware attacks especially, have pivoted into supporting the war effort for a number of reasons. Benjamin Sutherland writes
3: about geopolitics and technology for The Economist.
0: One is that it appears that Russian... Intelligence agencies have co-opted a number of Russian hackers by offering them money to uh, take a pause with ransomware attacks and support the war effort. Now, one of the sources I spoke with, a former CIA intelligence officer, has said that it's not just hackers getting paid by the Russian government. Some of them are also hacking for the Russians in order to avoid being tossed in jail. I see. So
3: this is a sort of familiar story when it comes to hacking that originates from Russia, which is that it's not just the government agencies and intelligence agencies, it's also kind of cyber thieves, you know, who want money and who might be in trouble and then therefore being kind of uh, pseudo blackmailed into doing
0: these attacks as well. Yes, exactly. That's well put. Now, we've also seen a number of what appear to be Ukrainian hackers who have uh, set aside their financially motivated ransomware attacks in order to attack Russian targets out of desire to defend Ukraine or or to see their side win.
3: Now, Ben, I know that you got uh, to take a look at how all of that played out for one group of infamous cyber
0: extortionists that are called Conti. Uh, What can you tell me about that? Conti is absolutely an infamous group. In fact, the U.S. State Department came out with some numbers saying that it was responsible for about $150 million in theft, which was uh, an unprecedented number for any identified ransomware operation. So just hours after Russia invaded on February 24th in the morning, the group Conti posted a statement offering, quote, full support for the invasion. Now, that message was quickly deleted, but it led to what one of my sources called high emotions and a certain amount of infighting and defections. And so there was a realignment of groups with certain people leaving pro-Russian groups, joining pro-Ukraine groups, and vice versa. Experts have said that that reshuffling led to a temporary decrease in attacks as groups kind of had to reform. But after, within weeks, that was kind of sorted out and and the attacks were back on. But Conti shifted its activity away from financially motivated ransomware attacks to attempting to wipe data and, and thereby weaken Ukrainians' will to fight or their ability to fight. We've also seen a lot of these attacks seem to be connected to military attacks with uh, attempts to soften up computer systems transport companies logistics firms and so forth in in the hours days or weeks before military attacks would follow so it's hard to tell how successful these attacks are because if they're uh, shifting away from stealing money where you certainly know if an attack has been a success or not you you don't exactly know how much those attacks really have or have not made it easier for military attacks to weaken the uh, Ukrainians' ability to respond or, or to resist.
3: How did this introduction of new cyber criminals turned cyber soldiers actually change the game in terms of the number of attacks that were launched?
0: The amount of attacks has increased appreciably. The estimates vary, but according to one of my sources, with a security firm that decamped from Kiev to Lisbon in April, uh, a company called Hacken, they say that attacks probably increased by about fivefold. Is it possible to tell the difference between cybercriminals
3: you know working on their own in gangs or, or people working for the Russian state at this stage?
0: Uh, that's a good question. It's obviously can be difficult. But the key thing is whether or not the attacks seem to be lining up with a certain logic as part of a broader campaign, especially when the attacks seem to be preceding or accompanying military attacks on similar targets.
3: Ben, what does this say about how talented the hackers in the Russian state sector are, if the Russian state is going to these cyber criminals to sort of do the hacking for them?
0: I guess I'd say it doesn't reflect well on uh, the in-house skills of the Russian government. They clearly felt that they were going to have more success with their overall campaign than they did. And so this would suggest that they started scrambling, trying to bring in more resources, put more firepower to bear on their attack on Ukraine. And they had to kind of get creative rather than be able to just rely on their in-house expertise. Ben, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Always a pleasure.
3: If Russia's cyber campaign was less effective than expected, what went wrong? And are there any lessons for digital warfare more broadly? That's coming up.
2: Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. Good credit. If you
1: own or operate a business,
2: Bank of America, N.A., copyright
3: 2024. On today's show, we're talking about cyber warfare in Ukraine. It's been intense, but its impact has been modest. So why hasn't Russia had more success?
2: So I think from our perspective... Uh, we probably weren't particularly surprised at how things have played out.
3: Paul Chichester is the Director of Operations at the UK's National Cyber Security Centre.
2: Ultimately, this is a multi-domain conflict and cyber is just one element of an overarching campaign that was being undertaken. So the Viasat attack, for instance, cyber being used to enable or support broader military objectives.
3: The Viasat attack that was successful in February, I mean, could you just paint a picture for people what that would have involved in order to carry out? Why haven't we seen more like that since the war started?
2: I think the Viasat attack, and and this is a characteristic of many complex and successful cyber operations, certainly disruptive cyber operations, is they take a huge amount of time to plan and conduct, uh, to ultimately get to the point within their system or network where you can have the desired effect. We can certainly extrapolate that that operation would have taken probably many months to get to the point where they were able to conduct the disruption. And the disruption itself was actually targeted against the the devices, if you like, the end points that customers used. And so to get to that point, the Russians almost certainly would have had to have undertaken a number of steps to put them in that position. And that kind of operation does take a significant amount of time. I think when you project that into what we've seen since, it may well be that actually Russia hasn't or didn't pre-position in other parts of uh, the Ukrainian cyberspace. And partly because, again, it was very hard to predict how any conflict plays out. And so ultimately building up that contingency in the places that you might need it is an incredibly hard thing to do from a military campaign point of view.
3: So there would have been a lot of surveillance of the Viasat network and um, sort of intelligence gathering to understand how the network functions in order to then prepare for the attack. So we're talking what weeks, months, or even years of planning and surveillance for an interruption that actually only lasted a matter of hours in the end.
2: A lot comes down to how much resource you put against something over a period of time. That can take many months, absolutely. And that is, again, the nature of some of the cyber operations is that the effects of these things can often still be short-lived but in a military campaign that may well be all you need if you feel that you ultimately can gain physical dominance in a conflict relatively quickly the first 24 36 72 hours will be absolutely critical
3: yeah a few hours could make all the difference during war i guess absolutely So Russia has continued to launch cyber attacks, not just on Ukraine, of course. They've been attacking places outside the country, including Western financial institutions. What has the success been like with those attacks?
2: So in terms of actual things that we've attributed to Russia ourselves, obviously there's a lot of speculation about what attacks are being conducted by which organisation. But I think generally that hasn't been much success perceived or seen by the West. And I think you know a huge amount of that goes to the Ukrainians' own defences. I think it goes to the huge support that international partners and, and industry have done. But I'd also say that a lot of that resilience is built upon Ukraine's work over many years, defending themselves in the time where actually cyber operations have always been a core part of Russia's campaign against Ukraine.
3: Now, Ukraine is not in NATO, but earlier this year, it was made a member of NATO's Cooperative Cyber Defence Centre of Excellence. How much do you think that Western backing has helped Ukraine on the cyber war front?
2: Support from allies and industry has been an important part but I certainly wouldn't underestimate the significant impact that Ukraine's own resilience has had in this. It has been absolutely a team sport, and I think if you look at the number and the range of ongoing offensive cyber operations that Russia continues to carry out, each one is perhaps caught or blocked or defended against Slightly differently, it might be an industry partner. Very often, it's Ukraine's own defence. It might be an ally, but it's that collective defence, and obviously something that's at the very heart of NATO's alliance. Uh, that I think the collective defence element shows again the power of that sort of alliance in defending against these kinds of attacks. And what about companies? Uh, Microsoft, I believe, has been helping as well. Um, what's the sort of role that they've had? They have played. Uh, a really significant part, as have many companies. I think that's been one of the perhaps most impressive pieces of learning, if you like, is just showing now that the cyber domain and the technological world that we live in is fundamentally reliant upon commercial companies to help us defend it and uh, I know many, many countries, and including ourselves you know have had close industry partnerships over many years and have always felt that those partnerships are vital to national security and national defence. But the Ukraine situation, I think, has shown that in very uh, sharp focus. Yeah,
3: I guess that that there's lots of national security infrastructure by governments, of course, but also there's plenty of private company uh, software as well, which can easily be gateways to attack. And so therefore, you need to be bringing these people on board to create a completely secure system, right?
2: Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's really all about defense in depth. And many of those layers now sit within industry, not just be at the critical infrastructure providers themselves, but then the many types of software and systems and hardware that they use are all commercial systems. So it's a multi-layer, multi-organization defense that you need to conduct.
3: Paul, thank you very much for your time.
2: Not at all. Thank you very much.
3: I'm back with Shashank Joshi, The Economist, Defence Editor. Shashank, we just heard from Paul Chichester there about some of the reasons why Ukraine has been able to fend off cyber attacks from Russia. He talked about Ukraine's own defences, support from allies and the role of private companies too. What do you think the most important factor has been?
1: I'd pick out a number of factors overall, Alan. One of them is Russia's own shortcomings in this area. Another is the failure to prepare for a long campaign, which is a, a problem we saw with its conventional military campaign as well. I'd pick out the difficulty of cyber warfare, the intrinsic difficulty. But you asked about the most important factor, and I think that has to be Ukraine's defense. You know, this, this was not a meek cyber campaign. Paul's boss, Lindy Cameron, called this arguably the most sustained and intensive cyber campaign that we have recorded. So this wasn't for want of trying, but the cyber security officials I speak to are full of praise for the Ukrainians. They say some of the stuff that Ukraine did, like migrating its government services out of the country onto the virtual cloud, switching its operating systems onto completely new versions of Windows, um, having a full-scale contingency plan, dispersing its officials and officers, that this was stuff Western governments would not necessarily have done. And, And this wasn't common sense. Many people thought the cyber offense would always win. The attacker is going to always get through. This shows that actually a disciplined, diligent defense can work. It can yield results.
3: And what about what it says about the effects of Russia's cyber campaign itself and its prowess in that sphere? I mean, you and I have talked in the past about the scary prospect of Russia's cyber warfare. And has that uh, prowess been overrated?
1: I think to some extent it has. Russia has been very active in the cyber realm. It's been very good at cyber espionage, including some very sustained and effective campaigns. And of course, you know, the most famous one of all is its ability to conduct political warfare against the American elections in 2016, which it did, which was a program done by its intelligence services. So it's not as if it's a neophyte in the cyber realm. However, The country's military cyber forces are quite young compared to their Western rivals. The Americans have been thinking about how to integrate cyber operations into military operations for 30-plus years. This goes back to the 80s, certainly to the early 90s. The Russians have much, much less experience at this. And I think some of that shows, right? There was one example of a Russian military strike taking down the same network – that Russian cyber forces were attempting to infect. And that ironically forced the Ukrainians to revert to more secure means of communication than they otherwise would have done. The other experts I spoke to said that pretty much all of Russia's known attacks on critical infrastructure have been either prematurely exposed, riddled with errors, or, In the very famous case called NotPetya, which was a sort of ransomware attack against Ukraine in 2017, they have spilt out beyond the intended target causing massive collateral damage. So I think that this does to some extent show a gulf between at the very top end American cyber military capabilities and Russian ones, even if we don't have the full picture of what Russia is capable of doing.
3: But before we jump to the conclusion that the the Russian cyber campaigns are overrated, I mean, are there any other reasons that their campaigns could have been constrained? Are we talking hubris or anything else that could have been the explanation for this?
1: Yeah, there definitely is. And in the same way that we didn't see their military at its full potential on day one, back on February 24th, we didn't see their cyber forces at their full potential, right? They assumed it was going to be a quick War. They assumed that they would occupy Kiev, it would fall without resistance, and this would be a war of occupation, not a war of actual fighting. And that influenced their military campaign disastrously, but it also influenced their cyber campaign, right? Why would you attack critical infrastructure that you think you're going to basically be running in three days' time? So that's partly why we didn't see them unload their full capability against Ukrainian infrastructure. And also cyber campaigns, as I think Paul has conveyed, are very complex. They're very painstaking to run. So if you prepare for a three-day campaign, you may have attacks like Viasat that you've been planning for months and months and months. But if the war drags on, you may not have planned anything else. And that's why your attacks will grow more tactical and more opportunistic. It doesn't mean you're not capable of of launching more sophisticated ones. But if you thought you wouldn't need them, you're suddenly caught off guard when the war is stretching on. And I think that's some of what we're seeing as well, the mismatch between Russian expectations and the reality of a war in which they have not met their initial objectives and it's stretching into the future uh, to Russia's disadvantage.
3: So it's not that Russia can't do those more sophisticated attacks. It's just the nature of cyber attacks themselves. I think perhaps we lazily assume that it's possible to do all sorts of very sophisticated things all of the time, when in fact, what you're saying is that the very sophisticated attacks could take years of intelligence gathering beforehand to actually do the damage that that the attacker wants.
1: I think that this is absolutely critical and this kind of gets to the, the the next piece of the puzzle, which is you know, cyber is difficult even if you're very good at it, even if you plan for it. People think of cyber capabilities as being like these big guns you keep in reserve and if you're a good cyber power like America or Britain or Israel, you pull the gun out, you point it at the target and you press the red button. That's not it. Cyber is more like a special forces raid. Think of the American raid to capture Bin Laden or to kill the Al-Qaeda leader, Ayman al-Zawahiri, recently. You know, it's something you prepare for. You build a model of the building that you're targeting. You collect intelligence for months beforehand. Maybe you do some dry runs. That is what cyber war is like. If you think of the uh, Russian attacks on the Ukrainian grid that I've alluded to, the ones in 2015 and the one in 2016, those took – a huge amount of time. I think the one in 2016 took more than two years for the Russians to plan. So it's not something you can just decide, oh, you know, we've, we've lost in Kiev. We need a new cyber campaign. We've got to target the Ukrainians. You can't just write it out on the back of an envelope in the space of a few weeks. That's not how high-end cyber capabilities work. And so there is a lot more friction and complexity in cyber war than people assume.
3: Western institutions have already been the target of many Russian attacks in the past, um, including financial institutions, companies, etc. Is there any potential for the cyber war that Russia is waging uh, on Ukraine? Is there any potential for that to go more global?
1: This is what we worried about, Alok. But actually, I'd say our fears have subsided. If you look at that Russian attack on Viasat. It did affect the modems uh, for Viasat that also were installed at German wind farms. But that was incidental. It wasn't very severe. It wasn't really serious. You know, I mentioned the NotPetya attacks in 2017. Those caused $10 billion of damage globally. This has caused nothing equivalent. All the officials I talk to say the Russians are being very careful. They've been careful to avoid collateral damage against NATO targets, to avoid escalating outside because they understand what that would mean. They would understand that could draw NATO into the cyber conflict in a way that would be very disadvantageous to them. There are some signs that their risk appetite is changing. In September, for example, Microsoft pointed to a piece of malware called Prestige. This was a piece of ransomware that was directed at transport and logistics in Poland, uh, which is a key hub for arms supplies to Ukraine. And that was suspected act by the GRU, Russia's military intelligence agency. So we are seeing some kinds of attacks against... Western targets, but these are still calibrated. These are still quite cautious. I think that the Russian regime understands it does not want this to be a free-for-all against the West, because ultimately it would have a lot to lose as a result of that as well.
3: That's very interesting. Now, if you could zoom out for us for just a second, after hearing about all of the different ways that the Russian campaign has gone, I wonder what the lessons there are about cyber war in general, what we didn't know before that we've learned through this conflict.
1: I'd say two things I'd leave us with, Anok. One of them is that a good defense can work, but it's really hard. And when I look at that Ukrainian cyber defense, it involves not just Western cyber agencies providing enormous assistance to Ukraine. It involves a pivotal role by private companies, companies like Microsoft, ESET, which is another cybersecurity firm, who are basically sitting on Ukrainian networks, monitoring traffic, looking for... Russian malware slipping through and using artificial intelligence to do lots of that as well. Um, but this is a team effort. It's a really complicated team effort. And I think it gives us a model of what collective defense in cyber looks like. The other thing, and this is the really important one as well, is that, you know, our perception of cyber war, alloc was shaped by some big operations. It was shaped by Stuxnet, which was the American-Israeli attack on Iran's nuclear infrastructure back in the late 2000s, early 2010s, um, which was an astonishing attack, you know, taking down this Iranian nuclear plant that was air-gapped, separated from the internet, and yet still it was mechanically affected by nothing but computer code. And then we saw the Russian attacks on Ukraine's power grid. Those made us think that cyber was going to be this tool of incredible, exquisite, surgical destruction against infrastructure. Now, cyber professionals knew that that was unrealistic, but I think the the popular understanding was nonetheless that kind of cyber Pearl Harbor vision. I think this has brought us down to a more realistic view of cyber capabilities. This war has been intense. It's been hard fought. It's been really bitter. And it has had an effect on Ukraine. But nonetheless, I think it shows us the reality of cyber warfare is a lot messier than that kind of exquisite vision of cyber Armageddon perhaps had us believe.
3: Shashank, thank you as always for your time.
1: Thanks very much for having me again.
3: Thanks also to Zivinka Orodnik, Benjamin Sutherland and Paul Chichester. And thank you for listening to Babbage. You can read analysis by both Shashank and Benjamin on cyber warfare in Ukraine on our website. For that, you'll need to subscribe. Podcast listeners can get a special introductory rate at economist.com podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Babbage this week was produced by Sarah Larnyuk and Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist.
2: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero.